hold my From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello and welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement here at Family Research Council. It's my pleasure to be sitting in with you and for Tony today. Today on the program, some very interesting developments across the country. The South Dakota legislature passed a bill to protect children from chemical and surgical mutilation. Now, what does this mean for the other states considering similar legislation? And will South Dakota's governor, Kristi Noem, sign it? We'll talk about that coming up. Also, a lawsuit FRC is part of is challenging the FDA's approval of an abortion drug. Could we see chemical abortion drugs removed from the market? We'll talk about that coming up in the program as well. Also, at the end of the program, in our worldview segment, the Grammys took a dark turn, even a satanic turn, last weekend. Why do artists seem to have such an interest in Satanism? And is there some greater good being accomplished? We'll talk about that all coming up later in the program. But first, our headline for today. As the ongoing debt ceiling debate continues, President Biden has renewed his claim that Republicans want to make cuts to both Social Security and Medicare. Now, you remember that in his State of the Union address this week, the president originated this claim, which he later walked back. But yesterday in Florida, he repeated this line of attack. And this comes even as this week, House Republicans released a list of proposed spending cuts that do not include these benefits, and instead targeting wasteful, inefficient, and unnecessary federal spending. This includes the millions in LGBT and DEI special interest projects earmarked into last year's $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill. Joining me now to discuss this and more is U.S. Representative Ben Klein. He serves on the House Budget Committee, the House Appropriations Committee, and is the chair of House Judiciary's new Subcommittee on Responsiveness and Accountability to Oversight. He represents the 6th Congressional District of Virginia. Congressman Klein, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks, Joseph. Good to be with you. It's good to have you. Now, the House Budget Committee this week released a detailed list of cuts. Uh, in addition to targeting woke spending, also capped Obamacare spending focused on waste and fraud. Tell us more about what's happening here. Uh, Joseph, we've seen trillions in wasteful spending over the last four years of Nancy Pelosi's speakership, uh, two of those under Joe Biden's presidency. Uh, the economy can't take any more of this wasteful spending. It's crowding out necessary programs. And so uh, if we are to have a debt ceiling increase, it needs to be accompanied by some changes to the way that this Congress operates. And we need to restore some fiscal responsibility to the process. Now, one of the things that Congress, that Republicans uh, specifically identified is woke funding, which seems to be a new term. Elaborate on that a bit, if you would. Well, what we found is that uh, funding that goes to various agencies across the federal government, from transportation to education to health care, uh, even to agriculture, you're seeing bureaucrats in Washington dictate uh, terms and conditions of these grants uh, that are making them contingent on uh, certain types of uh, liberal policies being adopted by the grant recipients. Uh, we just saw today that Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg was talking about only granting infrastructure improvement money to ports that uh, encourage diversity and equity. So whatever a port can do to encourage diversity and equity, I don't know. But, but uh, those kinds of strings uh, need to be eliminated, and we need to really get rid of all of the, the woke culture that's infiltrated government from top to bottom. Now, perhaps different colored ships would accomplish that goal of the uh, the port's DEI objectives. I, I share uh, your concern about what that actually means in practice, but certainly there is kind of a totalitarian instinct there for um, quotas of all kinds. But you're you're targeting these uh, these cuts, these attempted these proposed cuts at the moment. Do you sense there's any kind of agreement? President Biden has 
has emphasized in the last week his desire to work with Republicans to be bipartisan. Uh, do you sense that there's any common ground here with the Democrats on some of these cuts? Well, his rhetoric surrounding bipartisanship was uh, very brief in his State of the Union, and it was followed up by attacks on Republicans, uh, some sitting right there in the chamber. Uh, we responded and, and were uh, castigated by the White House for actually daring to respond when he lied directly to the Congress about not only our intentions to cut Social Security and Medicare, which uh, we don't have, but also exaggerating about things like not needing oil in 10 years' time. Uh, that was the laugh line of the night. You know, these electric cars that he's so fond of are going to have to ride on tires made from rubber, made from oil, and roads made of pavement made from oil bases. So it, it really doesn't make any sense. He wasn't making a whole lot of sense. He was really bouncing between shouting and whispering and and uh, it was it was an uncomfortable situation for those of us uh, watching him uh, really really making a, a sad performance and hurting our ability to make a bipartisan agreement on the debt ceiling well to that point about the way that he really is trying to make uh, social security and, and Medicare a, a political issue right now. Um, he seems to be, frankly, taunting Republicans. Let's play clip one, and then I want to give you a chance to respond to this. We saw on Tuesday night Republicans don't like me being called out on this. They were not very happy with me pointing this out. But their words speak, look, I know that a lot of Republicans, their dream is to cut Social Security and Medicare. Well, let me say this. If that's your dream, I'm your nightmare. <laughs> Congressman Klein, what's your reaction? Well, it just shows that the president's living in an alternate reality. He is living in a world where he thinks that uh, Republicans dream about cutting Social Security and Medicare, when in fact, uh, we want to secure Social Security and Medicare, save it from uh, being uh, hurt due to rapid increases in inflation, eroding the, the benefits that seniors receive due to these massive spending increases that Biden himself is pushing. So the Democrats are really undermining Social Security and Medicare programs, and uh, Republicans are committed to keeping them, saving them, and improving them for future generations. And let's talk about this a bit, because Medicaid and Social Security are a significant part of the budget. Now, the country has more than $30 trillion in debt, most of which has been accumulated in the last 15 years. And in addition, there, when Social Security was created, there were 159 workers for every beneficiary of Social Security. So 159 people paying into the system for every single beneficiary. Now that number is under three, fewer than three people paying in for every recipient. Can we address the financial challenges that the country is facing, including programs like Social Security and Medicaid or Medicare, without making reforms to them? Well, the Social Security and Medicare programs are due to become insolvent in the next decade. So we are going to have to have a conversation about saving those programs. And when Democrats are undermining the stability of those programs, uh, those benefits are worth less and less to seniors thanks to inflation running rampant. Uh, and the C and the Democrats just want to increase taxes and increase spending and make the problem that much worse. Yeah. Republicans want to have a long-term conversation, but right now for the debt ceiling, we are not considering anything related to Social Security or Medicare. Uh, we can increase the debt limit, but only if we see commitment to balancing the budget long-term and making those decisions that are necessary when it comes to wasteful and unnecessary spending. Is that a difficult conversation to have in Congress, uh, to just confront the cold reality of the financial s situation in these programs when the American public, frankly, likes all those benefits? Well, it's a difficult conversation to have uh, about whether the sky is blue or the, uh, you know, the grass is green. Uh, Republicans and Democrats disagree about everything. But one thing we all agree on is that Social Security and Medicare are essential programs, and we are committed to protecting them 
as we have these discussions about increasing the debt ceiling. I want to switch topics on you for our last few minutes here. The former FBI special agent Nicole Parker testified yesterday at the House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. Here's part of what she had to say. Let's play clip two. Every day I woke up and I embraced being an FBI special agent until things changed. Over the course of my 12 plus years, the FBI's trajectory has transformed. On Bureau, the papers, the Bureau's mission it remained the same, but its priorities and governing principles shifted dramatically. The FBI became politically weaponized, starting from the top in Washington and trickling down to the field offices. Congressman Klein, is, is she just a disgruntled former employee or is she uh, identifying a real problem? Well, if she is identifying a real problem and it's becoming increasingly clear that uh, the Bureau has been politicized and weaponized and has targeted uh, not only uh, right-wing media, uh, but worked with social media, Twitter and other networks to uh, uh, ban conservative viewpoints. Uh, and so Jim Jordan, as chairman of judiciary and as uh, chairman of the select subcommittee, is going to get to the bottom of it. I'm chairman of a subcommittee that's kind of the enforcement unit for uh, this uh, retrieval of documents. So when he asks for testimony, when he asks for information, uh, we hope that we will be getting that information from the Department of Justice. Otherwise, my subcommittee will uh, leap into action to take yeah. these uh, legislative aides from Department of Justice uh, up to the Hill to get their testimony and hear from them as to why they shouldn't be uh, held in contempt or, or further further. In uh, interviewed about why they're not cooperating. Well, there's a lot of us interested in the answers to those questions, but there's a lot of opposition to the questions being asked. And that is, Senator Chuck Grassley uh, indicated that the opposition to these inquiries is, is meaningful to him. Let's play clip three. I've ran countless investigations. In the past few years, I've never seen so much effort from the FBI, the partisan media, and some of my Democrat colleagues to interfere with and undermine very legitimate congressional inquiries. Congressman Klein, do you think the uh, intensity of the opposition to these inquiries is evidence that we're kind of over the target here? Well, that is an indicator that uh, you're hitting close to home when you do get such opposition, not just from the Department of Justice when it comes to providing the documents that are being requested, uh, but also the partisan rhetoric from the Democrats, uh, from the White House, from the media. Uh, it, it is uh, disconcerting, and I share Senator Grassley's concerns. It's my hope that we will be getting the information that we're requesting and uh, and that we'll be getting the answers that, the, quite frankly, the voters and Americans deserve. That's right. In about 20 seconds, can Congress do anything about this with this information? Or is this just about making the public aware so they can do something about it at the ballot box? Well, it's hope, my hope uh, that uh, we can make a difference by having that discussion with the Department of Justice, that the information that's provided will give the voters the information that they need because they deserve to have transparency in their government. That's Congress what voters McClain? want. That's what people want. Fortunately, we are out of time. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. When we come back, good news out of South Dakota. We'll tell you about it when we return here on Washington Watch. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. 
To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. The South Dakota Senate passed HB 1080 yesterday, which protects children in the state from harmful and permanent gender treatments. Here's South Dakota State Representative Bethany Soy. We care deeply about children who are struggling with their identities and want to provide them with true, meaningful help, not permanent physical damage. The bill now heads to Governor Kristi Noem's desk for her signature. She's indicated she supports the measure. As we've covered on Washington Watch, this common-sense legislation to protect children has been controversial, even in deep red South Dakota, due to the deep pockets and donations of Sanford Health, a major employer in the state that pushes these treatments for children. Joining me now to discuss all of it is Norman Woods. He's the executive director at Heritage Family Alliance in the Mount Rushmore State. Norman, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, thanks for having me, Joseph. Good to see you. Talk to us about the bill. Uh, did it accomplish what you hoped it would accomplish? Oh, absolutely. So we're super excited to see the Help Not Harm bill pass through the Senate. Um, and again, on such a strong vote. So you saw on the House side, it was 60 to 10. On the Senate side, it was 30 to 4. Really glad to see such a strong vote on such a strong piece of legislation. You know, it covers all the different angles. It stops the puberty blockers on minor children, the cross-sex hormones, and the irreversible surgeries, and gives them a chance later in life to come back for damages if they were victimized by these things. And let's talk a bit about that last part of this, this idea that you can come back for damage if they are victimized. This seems to be a trend in these forms of legislation. This would allow a, a minor who goes through this transition procedure 5, 10, 15 years later to come back and sue the person who did that, the providers, is that correct? Yeah, so the age is set at 25 or three years after you know or should have known of the harm. So, you know, to be honest, we would have liked to see that be a little bit longer, but it's just one of those compromises that you make through the process. So we set it at 25 or three years after the harm or you knew or should have known. Yeah. Do you expect that to have a deterrent on medical providers? And I, I use the term medical provider loosely in this sense, but on providers who would be tempted to either prescribe these drugs or actually perform these surgeries? I think that paired with um, the other teeth in the bill, which is that if a, a provider is found to be doing this, then they will lose their medical license from their governing board. I think when you add those two things together, it's a really strong deterrent. And I really think these will be stopped here in South Dakota. 
Now, Norman, you mentioned the margins that this passed by. Strong majorities in both the House and the Senate. Did that surprise you in light of how hot this issue is? Yeah, we were definitely surprised. Um, there were a lot of people who previously weren't on board with this issue that you know voted yes to support it. So we were definitely surprised, but incredibly grateful at the at the huge margins that it passed with. So what do you attribute that to? If this wasn't necessarily what you expected, why do you think you got such wide majorities in both houses of the legislature? You know, I think there's several things that have changed because South Dakota was actually the first state to try one of these bills back in 2020, um, Representative Fred Deutsch, 1057. So, but several things have changed since then. First of all, just the culture and people's awareness of the issue. You know, we've seen, you know, swimmers take titles from girls, you know, biological boys take it from girls. We've seen all sorts of different stories of people coming out who have said, like Chloe Cole, who's had these surgeries done and is now speaking across the nation saying, this is not what we need to be doing to children. So we have more and more stories, more and more cultural awareness, first of all. Then here in South Dakota, people are just more waking up. We saw recently Sanford Health had their Midwest Gender Identity Clinic, where they were open and bold about the fact that they were inviting doctors from across the Midwest to come and learn more about these procedures. And people are really waking up. So when you add that to the fact that we had the governor's support this year right out of the gate, it was just a totally different ballgame this time. And that's, I think, why we saw the really different results in the vote. And you mentioned their Sanford Health again. We talked about them in the uh, opening to the segment. They've been, uh, they, they're benefiting from this because they have been providing uh, some of these treatments. Uh, is this a function of the, 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 the leadership of South Dakota saying, Sanford Health, you're just wrong. We don't care what you think uh, because public support is clearly on the side of protecting children in this way. Uh, has Sanford changed at all or is it the politicians that have just developed a spine? I think this is just the politicians and our legislators really showing leadership and saying, no, we're, we're stopping this here in South Dakota. You know, Sanford didn't testify in any of the committees. And from what I saw, they didn't even give any statements to the media. So they just kind of stayed out of it this time, which was really interesting to see. And yeah, the legislators this year just stood up in South Dakota and said, nope, no more. No more chemical castrations, no more body mutilations. We're stopping this. And it does seem to many of us like common sense. But, Norman, one of the other issues here that I that I do want to address, your governor has kind of had some uh, controversy around this issue in the past. She vetoed a bill that prevented men from participating in women's sports. She later went back and signed a bill that did the same after public backlash. But you mentioned mm -hmm. that she was supporting this out of the gate. Did something change for her on this issue? Why do you think you had her support so early? So I don't want to speak to her, you know, personal reasons. I haven't had a discussion with her about why she personally, you know, supported this year versus last time. But I think all those issues I previously mentioned of the public awareness, the cultural awareness, and just that it's so obviously happening here in South Dakota, I think all of that played a role into her realizing that this is really something that, that she can lead on. And if I have my facts right here, she will be the first governor in this in the US this year to sign a full help not harm bill. So she just I think has realized that she can show leadership on this and we're really grateful to see it. We are grateful to see it. That is true. And, and we are grateful to her on behalf of the whole country. And to that point, Norman, what's your sense of whether what you're doing in South Dakota this year, and it certainly is not the first state to pass legislation like this, but it's on the leading edge. Do you expect this to continue to build momentum? You mentioned the, the stories of detransitioners, the public kind of being educated on this issue. Do you think that we're at the beginning of a, a wave of legislation like this that's going to protect children in significant parts of the country? I do. And we've been seeing all sorts of bills introduced. Um, I think there's like seven or more in the process right now with more to come. As we were finishing our hearing and wrapping up, we were literally listening to one in Nebraska and all these other states that I really do think that people are rising up, people are seeing what's going on, and more and more states are saying, no, we're going to stop doing this here. We're going to stop mutilating kids. We're going to stop these experimental procedures, and we're going to give kids help, not harm. I really do think we're starting to see a movement in that direction. And that is encouraging. And, and Norman, we know that this is a lot of work and that when we have days like this that are good and we celebrate legislation that passes, we know that you and your team have done a lot to make this happen. So we're grateful for it. We're also grateful for you spending some time with us today. Thanks so much. Hey, glad to join you. Thanks for having me.
Coming up next, a lawsuit that FRC is part of challenges the existence in the market of a chemical abortion drug. Is there a chance that drug will not be available? We'll tell you about it when we come back. Stay with us. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. So thankful that you have chosen to spend a few minutes with us today. Late last year, our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom filed a first-of-its-kind lawsuit in which four national medical associations, as well as four doctors who care for pregnant and post-abortive women, sued the Food and Drug Administration for illegally approving chemical abortion drugs that harm girls and women. The Family Research Council will also submit an amicus brief in support of the lawsuit. Joining me now to discuss it all is Chris Gasick, FRC's Senior Fellow for Regulatory Affairs. He also authored this amicus brief for FRC, and he joins us now. Chris, welcome back to the show. It's good to be with you, Joseph. So uh, tell us, in layman's terms, what's going on here? Well, uh, this is actually a pretty exciting development, the whole um, the litigation itself, which is brought by a, a doctor's group called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. And uh, Alliance uh, Defending Freedom is, uh, they're handling the, the legal side of it. And so it's a very good group. It's very knowledgeable in the medicine and the law. So these folks um, have filed a, a lengthy brief that represents 20 years, uh, at least 25 years of work and knowledge about uh, mifepristone, that's the abortion drug, the abortion regimen, and, uh, and all of the, the adverse events that come with it and all of the, uh, the problems that are associated with the approval of the drug. And Chris? so, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, help me understand this, because this drug was approved, I understand, in 2000, right? Right. So this has been in the market for a long time. Right. What happened that we are just now 23 years later, 22 years later, I guess, if it was filed last year, just now filing this lawsuit? Well, one of the things I want to say about this is that the, the point that I was trying to make was that these doctors um, have been following and objecting to this process, to the drug, to the process by which it was approved since 2000. They were always being, you know, sort of rejected, kind of, you know, blown off by FDA. And every time there was a sort of a, you know, a, a re-upping of the, of the, uh, the drug application when the, uh, the company sought from FDA to reduce um, 
safety precautions, and this happened in 2016, and it happened again recently. Then the sort of the, the clock was reset on whether or not you could, you know, litigate against the, the original approval. Okay. And so uh, in this last approval where you have the, you know, and this was sort of going on for a year, um, the, where the drug could be um, released to pharmacies. Uh, or, so... And anyway, what, what basically happened is that that, that opened up the, the abil ability to do this. And then Dobbs coincidentally happened. It was, this did not happen because of Dobbs. Okay. Now, apparently the allegations are that these drugs were, that the, the appropriate process was not used to approve these drugs. If this lawsuit prevails, would this just remove chemical abortion drugs from the market? That's that would be the ultimate uh, ob objective. Yes, and, and the point is that the the uh, the, the original approval uh, and these subsequent ones were granted, um, you know, without authority, without legal basis, mm -hmm. because the uh, the process was corrupt. And and our in our brief, what we filed was basically talking to the, the political nature of the process and to uh, and how that sort of played out. Uh, when the when the drug was considered by the Clinton administration, the, okay. let me just say one thing: the Clinton administration had this. Uh, it was like Bill Clinton's, uh, like if you're you know older, it's Manhattan Project or you know Operation Warp Speed. The, the the biggest thing that they had in their administration almost was getting abortion pills to market in the United States, and it had already been approved in France. So there was this massive effort, and it turned out when we were like looking through the documents again recently, I mean. It, it was basically the the government was doing this and, and, and pulling all of the negotiating strings to get the French company to hand over its, its property rights, you know, intellectual property mm -hmm. rights. Then they ended up having to almost stand up a drug company through the through a you know there, there was a lot of process sure. and so yeah. but it was all being engineered by the you know by the government and then at the very end in 2000 we, we sort of bring this out when they yeah. didn't want to live up to their safety commitments and and, and things like this. The, the objections given, in the agency were basically rolled over. And given the nature of the issue, it certainly seems plausible that uh, they would have broken some rules in getting this drug to market. But uh, this lawsuit is about a specific drug, mifepristone, I understand. Right, which is also RE46. Some people know it that way. How, okay, how many abortion drugs are there? So if this was taken off the market, are there others that people would just default to instead? Or does this just eliminate the ability to get a chemical abortion? There's only one. Um, there could be off-label use. I mean, in the 1990s, uh, there was a chemotherapy drug, uh, methotrexate, that was used. Um, there might be other... Uh, there's one other drug that might be a possible substitute okay. that could be used um, in an off-label way. But, no, it is the um, basically the, uh, the only drug that's been approved um, for use as an abortifacient in, in Chris, the United okay. States. We, we are running short on time, yep. but to that, if there's only one drug and the hope of this lawsuit is to take that off the market because it failed to follow the appropriate approval process in the first place, is there hope that it would not that it would not be successful in being approved appropriately? Or do you think that the federal government would just, you know, back up and then just run it through again, jump over a few additional hoops and then get it back into the market? There could be all kinds of shenanigans, but, you know, you'd have to do it the right way. And that's that's sort of the point here. I just want to say one quick thing. They need discovery about the original process. And that's that's a big part of what the suit is about, getting in the federal records. Well, this is a very interesting case, because as we know, post Dobbs, uh, even before Dobbs, chemical abortion was on the rise. Since Dobbs, even more so, the abortion industry is dependent upon it. The idea that we could get this off the market is uh, promising and exciting, to be sure. Chris Gasick, thanks for coming to tell us about it today. You're welcome. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Grammys and some Satanism at the Grammys and how we should think about all of it in our Worldview conversation. Stay with us right here on Washington Watch. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. 
men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Quick reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com where you can find this and every episode of Washington Watch when it's most convenient for you. And by now, many viewers and listeners are aware of last Sunday's Grammy Awards, which deliberately courted controversy by portraying a version of satanic worship on screen in prime time. The event sought controversy, and they got what they wanted because now people like me who would never otherwise watch or talk about the Grammys are talking about it, at least. Though the sophisticated class may dismiss the criticisms about Satanism, we should object when Satan is worshipped on television, even if maybe insincerely or ignorantly. But the backlash to the backlash quickly became part of the story. Many claimed that concerns about Satanism were a distraction from the historic victory for LGBTQ plus plus rights that were represented in that event. See, what you don't know, or you may not know, and I did not know, was that both of the performers in this case were men who no longer identify as men. So we were supposed to look at the entire ritual as a victory, as something that was historic, not satanic. But how should we respond when we're told that terrible things, things that are tragic, are actually wonderful because of their implication for some, what the culture would say, greater good. Joining me now to discuss this for a special Worldview Friday segment, again, is David Clausen, Director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. David, good to see you today. Great to be with you. Happy Friday, Joseph. Happy Friday to you. Now, David, I don't know how much of a Grammy watcher you are, um, but at least in preparation for this, I'm going to assume you're familiar uh, with what happened. What was your reaction when you saw this? Well, like you, Joseph, I, I did not watch the Grammys the next morning when I got on Twitter. I saw that this was trending, and I did watch a clip of, of the performance. And I had two reactions as I kind of 
digested everything that was happening. My first reaction, Joseph, was one of horror. Uh, the, the fact that Satan was being depicted on TV and, and being worshipped. Because as Christians, you know, the Bible clearly teaches that Satan is real. Satan is a fallen angel. Satan represents all opposition to God. He kind of embodies that. And so the fact, even if mockingly, uh, the devil is being worshipped and extolled, kind of what they were doing, that is horrifying. And I think every Christian should uh, be repulsed by that. But then my second reaction as I kind of dug into the story a little bit, is that I'm not entirely surprised. Um, you know, we know that Hollywood loves to push the envelope. They love to uh, push the transgressive. And so in one sense, the, the fact that this really wasn't that much of a story in the mainstream media, uh, I think that is also indicative of where our culture is today. Now, David, I know many people in the audience, many of our viewers and listeners right now did not see this. And in an attempt to, you know, generally describe what happened, the, the stage was turned into a lake of fire, essentially. It was red and black, and those were kind of all the hues. It actually looked a bit like a Biden speech in recent months. Um, I don't know if there's any connection to that, but I mean, it's true. Um, but it was turned into a lake of fire. And the reason it looked satanic is because one of the performers, whose name is Sam Smith, uh, donned a, a devil hat, right? He had horns. It was, a, it was a top hat with horns holding a staff, which was unambiguously a depiction of the devil, surrounded by these dancers, these performers who had been, you know, who had been attired as witches. They had long, black, dark hair. They looked very much like witches. As the song closes, they are actually bowing before this depiction of Satan. This wasn't like, you know, maybe that's kind of dark and satanic. Maybe you can read into that. This was, I don't know how you could be more overtly um, worshiping the devil in, in the imagery than they did there. That's where the um, kind of these accusations came from. Now, David, do you think, and, 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 I, and I do believe, because I think, that, you know, Hollywood, the entertainment industry, they like to stick their fingers in the eye of people like us, right? They like outrage. They don't like uh, Christian conservatism. They like outraging Christian conservatives, both because I think they do profit from it financially when we start doing what we're doing right now, which is talk about it. And now people know who Sam Smith is who never knew who Sam Smith was, right? So there's just this raw, like, um, marketing part of this. But is that reason alone to just ignore this when we see it and say, oh, let's not play their game. Let's not give them more publicity. Let's just let them worship Satan and kind of move on. No, I think it is important to, to pay attention because I think what we saw in that performance is indicative of where our culture continues to go, Joseph. Uh, part of the description, they also had flames d depicted on the screen in some, some sort of prison with like these witches trying to get out of it. The song that these two performers were singing, two biological males, neither one of, by the way, which identifies as male, one identifies as non-binary, the other identifies as transgender. The song that they were singing, the song that they were being awarded for, I think it was the, the best duet of the year, uh, the song's title itself was Unholy. Uh, and so uh, very intentional what they were doing. And so, yes, we know Hollywood uh, loves to poke their eye at evangelical Christians. But I think it's important for those of us who want to be discerning of our culture, discerning of the worldview that is dominating our culture. Uh, the fact that this happened, Joseph, it is indicative of where the worldview of this culture is headed. Uh, the, the fact that Satan, again, he represents the op opposition to God, uh, the, the, the satanic you know, rituals and things that were depicted, that represents the inverse of everything that undergirds Western civilization. And, and so seeing that depicted in art form, and I think artists love to be transgressive, they love to push the boundaries, I think it's worth noting what happened because this is where our elites are headed, and not just the elites, this is where our culture is headed. So to be discerning of our times, it's worth noticing actually what happens at the Grammys. Now, David, one of the reactions to the reaction, because, again, part of the story is something provocative happened, and that's kind of what artists do. Um, many people saw this, said this is satanic because it is. Just objectively, this is satanic in the same way that, you know, if you had put on stage a throne in heaven and there were angels bowing down around it singing, holy, 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 you would say, hey, that's Christian, right? And so this is objectively a satanic thing. Yes. But one of the reactions to this, and I want to read this to you, um, from billboard.com, which, which is a publication that covers uh, the entertainment industry. 
And they their comment about the reaction from people like you and I, they said that instead of celebrating the fact that the pair made history for the LGBTQ community last night, conservative viewers slammed the performances for promoting the worship of Satan. Right now, what they didn't say is it did not promote the worship of Satan. They said they slammed it for promoting the worship of Satan. So they kind of granted the premise, right? We realize that was Satanism, but get over it because there were two transgender guys who were doing it. That makes the whole thing wonderful. (laughs) Now, is this a pattern? No, I think it is. And, And I'm not surprised either, Joseph, that the two conveyors of this song Unholy and this whole performance at the Grammys are are two men, biological men, who they've made their careers and and their publicity about inverting the created order. It's almost a a Romans 1 platform that's embedded in all of this. And so I I think they go together. Uh, Romans 1 talks about how the, the, the... The creation uh, rejects the creator and turns and worships the creation. And so the fact that you're seeing sexual sin mixing with idolatry, that shouldn't surprise us. And I think one tangential thing to note about this, Joseph, is is the other performer, um, not Sam Smith, but the other gentleman, uh, I think his name is Petrus, Kim Petrus. You know, this is someone who's biologically male who had a surgery, you know, the, the left loves to say these surgeries never happen on minors, had a surgery at 16 uh, and is now identifying as a transgender female. Uh, again, the fact that all of these things are happening together, uh, I don't think, because uh, this is all of this is pushing against Christianity. It's all of this is a rejection of the biblical worldview, God's self-revelation, uh, the moral paradigm that uh, Christianity has given the, the world. The fact that all of this is kind of being packaged together, I'm not surprised by that. And what we are told is we shouldn't be bothered by it because, yeah, it's the worship of Satan, but that's not a big deal because there's some greater good being accomplished. And what I want people to understand is that is a very clear pattern in the sexual revolution, right? We, we see a very clear example of this in what happened at the Grammys and how at least Billboard responded to that. But this whole idea of, yeah, it looks terrible, but it's actually wonderful because there's some greater good. Earlier in the show, we talked about what happened in South Dakota. We talked about this mutilation, this chemical and surgical mutilation of children. And we would look at that and say, when you cut off the genitals of a child, that's terrible. When you cut off the breasts of a young girl so she looks more like a boy, that's terrible. And so something that is we're prone to be horrified by, they say, hey, actually, it's wonderful. And here's why, because that's equality. Same thing is happening on the abortion issue, right? When you talk about the dismemberment of a child three days before it's born, that's something that anyone with a soul looks at that situation and says, that's terrible. But we have lots of responsible adults in America who would say, actually, it just seems bad. It's actually good because it's being done in the furtherance of women's rights. So the pattern we see here is... Yeah, that seems awful, but let me tell you why it's actually wonderful. And I think that's a lot of the progress that the sexual revolution has advanced, and a lot of us continue to fall for it, don't we? No, absolutely, Joseph. And I think this this is kind of the the, uh, the Overton window, so to speak, that that is shifting things that you know were just we couldn't even imagine just twenty years ago, or now not just accepted. Uh, it's now you better fall in line, bigot, or we're going to throw you out of uh, the public square, out of polite society. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can't help but think about uh, the prophet Isaiah here and what he said. He said, "Woe to those who call good evil and evil good." And as our culture continues this slide, uh, rejecting Christianity, this embrace of unfettered uh, individualism, Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, this, uh, religion of self-autonomous man, uh, this is turning good into evil and evil into good, whether this is the gender issue, whether it's the life issue. But unfortunately, earlier um, this week, the president in his State of the Union Uh, Again, showing how beholden he is to the abortion lobby, that this is a mark of a society that is turning its back on God, calling good what is clearly evil, and then calling evil uh, what is good. And that's something every discerning Christian needs to be paying attention to. Every pastor leading a congregation needs to be paying attention to, uh, because these things are happening all around us, and we got to be discerning. 
David, there's one thing about the sexual revolutions. I honestly don't think they're that subtle. For those of us who are looking for it, uh, for example, they, they refer to their month-long celebration in June as their Pride Month, right? And Pride celebrations. And Scripture is very clear that uh, Pride comes before a fall, right? And so they went and labeled, branded the whole movement as Pride. And I think there's something significant to that. Well, in this case, this historic night, because it was the first time two transgender-identifying performers won a Grammy, this historic moment was literally ushered in and celebrated with a satanic worship service, is that just, you know, am I reading too much into this? Or is there something really obvious about this that uh, there's flashing red lights for those who are wanting to see them? Yeah, no, for those who are discerning, I, again, this all goes together, Joseph, when you worship the creation rather than the creator. Uh, gosh, Romans 1 talks about this, how this is a sign of God's judgment, God giving over a person or giving over society to their sin. This is an inversion of the moral order. This is an inversion of the created order. And so when you see these kinds of sexual sins being celebrated, I'm not surprised by this. And when you couple that with, again, a worship of, and even if it's mockingly, the worship of Satan, who stands for everything unholy, everything that is opposed to God, opposed to his kingdom, opposed to his will. When you reject God, all of these other maladies, all these other horrible things, they go together, Joseph. And I, and I think many of those who are in these movements, they do know what they're doing. David, we know that ultimately all sin is rebellion against God, and it's ultimately from hell, right? Yes. How do we draw the line? Where's the line between sin and satanic? Or is there one? Because we look at a lot of things in the culture that are that, that shouldn't be done, but we don't automatically say that's satanic. Then we see some things and say, well, that's satanic. Is that, uh, is that just uh, semantics? Or is there a real difference between something that is overtly satanic and just sinful? Yeah, I think sin is opposition to God. It's rebellion against God, to, to God, his word, to his will. Uh, sin is rebellion against the creator. Uh, Satanism, obviously, is something a little bit different. It's the worship of Satan. Now, I do think the spirit of Antichrist, that, that spirit of opposition to God, that's behind anything that is sinful. So I, I think they're connected, whereas maybe the adjective satanic would describe something more closely associated with the devil. But again, why did Satan, a fallen angel, get tossed out of heaven? It was because he rebelled against God. And anything sinful, anything satanic at its root is rebellion against God, his word, his will, his kingdom. And so, yes, Satanism is something different, adoration and worship directed to the devil. But all of it at root is a rejection of the creator. And to that point, as we, you know, we look at the Grammys, what's the right response for Christians from this? Should we just commit to never watch the Grammys again? I mean, which, of course, I didn't have to make the commitment. That's just kind of been a habit. But um, how do we respond to the fact that you run into this stuff in media? You want your kids to be able to think clearly about it. You don't want to be affected by it. You certainly don't want to be seduced by it. It's part of the world that we live in. How do we prepare ourselves to live in this world uh, without getting distracted? we got about 30 seconds. Yeah, I think two things. One, we should grieve. The, the impulse for every Christian watching things like this is to grieve, to be heartbroken. Things that are opposed to God, that should break our heart. But number two, we need to be discerning. We need to be uh, like the men of Issachar who know our times and we know, uh, know what we ought to do. And so I think we need to be discerning. We need to be paying attention. And we just need to go back to God's Word and take every thought captive to Him. And I think that's how we navigate some of these challenging things we, we see in our culture. And it should make us very aware that we are, in fact, living in a spiritual war. We have a real enemy. And we also have a very real friend who is going to win, and that we can take great hope in. David Glosson, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Joseph. And friends, we thank you for being with us as well. When we see the darkness take its mask off in the culture, that reminds us uh, that we have a job to do. There is a real war that we live in. But again, uh, God is going to win. We know the end. We can take great hope, which is why we can fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 
372-7234. 